Well, I read the story some time ago of a woman that was married to a very demanding man. He wrote out a list of rules when they got married, and he said, I want you to take this list of rules, and I want you to speak these rules every single day. I want you to quote these rules, and he said, I want you to commit those to memory, and he said, I want you to obey these rules to the letter. The list of rules included things like what time she was supposed to get up in the morning. Now, that wouldn't go over very well at my house. It included things like what he wanted to eat for breakfast on any given day of the week and what time his breakfast better be sitting on the table to the minute. The list of rules framed all the housework that she was responsible for. And not only did she have to do all the housework, it had to be done his way. Well, thank God the husband died. <laughs> After several long years of that nonsense, the husband just died. And as time passed, this woman fell in love with another man who just absolutely loved her and cherished her and put a ring on her finger. The husband did everything he could think of to bless his wife and just to shower her with his love and grace. And one day that woman was cleaning the house and she happened to reach back into a drawer and she felt a piece of paper back there and she pulled it out. It was the very list the first husband had written out for her. So she looked over the list and in the quietness of that moment she realized my current husband has made no such demands on me. My current husband has written out no set of rules for me like this. She said, but the interesting thing is, I'm still doing the same things I did for my first husband. But she says, what's different about this is she says, I moved to do it out of love, not out of obligation or rules. That is the heartbeat of God. No law but love. And so I want to minister for a little while this morning on that particular subject, no law, but love. It's the heartbeat of God. It's the heartbeat of Jesus. It's the heartbeat, friends, of the Holy Spirit. And I'll take it one step further and say, it is the heartbeat of the new covenant of grace. So let me run ahead of you here so that you don't have to develop this question later. And let's tackle right up front. What is the purpose then of the law? Because if you don't understand the purpose of the law, you'll really never appreciate grace. The purpose of the law is to condemn, now listen to me very carefully here, is to condemn an unbeliever. But once a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ, once they've done that, and once they've asked Jesus to come into their heart, the law is no longer your master. It is not designed to ever condemn you again. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, the Bible says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. You know, if there was a scripture I would just like to marinate in for a little while, it would be that one right there. For sin is no longer my master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, the Lord gave me this very interesting picture yesterday afternoon as I was just kind of minding my own business. Everybody has probably watched the space shuttle take off a time or two in your life, right, from NASA. It's something that's so spectacular. We love watching that thing shoot with all that power into the sky. Those two silos that are standing next to it, that's what they look like in comparison to the space shuttle, are called SRBs. 
They're rocket boosters. The purpose of those rocket boosters, and there's two of them, they're like the Ten Commandments. The purpose of those rocket boosters are to take that shuttle out of the Earth's atmosphere. But watch this. Those rocket boosters always break off at a certain point, and they fall back into the ocean. They're called solid rocket boosters, SRBs. When you understand it as though like the Ten Commandments, the law, that's what the Ten Commandments is. It's the law, and there's more to the law than just the Ten Commandments. They are to take us to another atmosphere. But the moment we reach that atmosphere, and that atmosphere, by the way, is Christ. The moment we reach that atmosphere, their job is to break off and fall away, and they can no longer be reattached to the shuttle. Are you getting that picture? The purpose of the law is to take its little bony finger and to stick it right in your face. An unbeliever, that is. And his purpose is to point out that you fall short of God's glory. And you know what? I'm thankful for that law to do that. The law had to do that to me one night, too. The purpose of the law is to bring us to the end of our own self-righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The purpose of the law is to exasperate us. It's to frustrate us. It's like that first husband with all the rules and demands and laws. The purpose of the law is just that. It's laws without love. It's rules without relationship. The law does not want to be your friend. And it does not want to be your lover. But Jesus does. Jesus wants to be your lover. Jesus wants to be your friend. But the law could care less about that. Even when you do something so well for so long, you think the law would come along once in a while and congratulate you and say, good job. I mean, for crying out loud, every time a person goes bowling, anybody gets a strike, they want to high-five you all the way back. You know what I'm saying? I mean, every single time. In fact, when you even miss that one pin you were trying to get, the guys still want to give you a high five to encourage you. The law will never, ever do that. And I thought about our natural law, our police departments and things like this. When the law pulls you over, and praise God that they don't have to do that very often, right? But now with today's technology, they can see more on that screen than what you know. In fact, I don't think they walk up to a car not knowing who it's registered to and certain details. They probably, even today, can see every time that you've had a moving violation. They can probably see if you've had a DUI or many DUIs. Or they can see where you've been reckless, a reckless driver or something like that. They can see all that information there. And so when they walk up to your car, it's always license, you know, your driver's license, registration, your insurance. That's what they ask for. But I can only imagine if I was an officer and I walk back to my car and I'm looking at this person. They've been driving 30 or 40 years. They've never had a moving violation. They've been a good boy. It would be hard for me to be able to write a citation to someone like that. You know what I'm saying? Now, if, if the guy's been driving reckless, he's got all these DUIs, he's got all these speeding tickets and stuff like that, then you're like, I can't wait to give you another one. Maybe you'll stop. See, we might get those kind of breaks by that law enforcement, but this law will never give you that break. I don't care how many times you've been doing it right over the years. It is only there to point it out to an unbeliever, you failed again. You failed again. You're a failure. You failed again. This Christmas Eve, I did something that was uncharacteristic at my house. I'm going to tell on myself, okay? You ready for this? I wore jeans. 
I knew David would like that. And so my kids, when they came walking, I almost never wear jeans. I have a professional job. I'm always dressed up. Saturdays I'm in school. I'm always dressed up. Sunday I'm dressed up for church. And I don't think there's any point in dressing two different ways in one day. So I had on jeans. And my family walked in and like, Dad, yeah, there's something wrong here, Dad. You got jeans on. And I could feel the complex already starting to build in me. I'm like, yeah, I got jeans on. They're like, Dad, that is one strike. I'm like, okay. Not only did I have jeans on, but I had a dress shirt on that was untucked. We got the tails hanging out. They're like, uh, Dad, your shirt is not tucked in. That is two strikes against you. And I must have been really pushing the envelope that day because not only did I have jeans on and a shirt that was untucked, but I didn't have an undershirt on, a t-shirt. So I showed about another inch of my neckline. And that was like way too much information for my kids. And they're like, oh, Dad, uh, you know, you have no undershirt on either, no t-shirt. That is <laughs> three strikes, Dad, you're out. And you know what? It was all in fun. I didn't think they were going to pick on me like that. It was all in good fun. But I felt this, this sense of, is there something wrong with me, God? I, I did all this? I mean, this is the way most guys just dress, right? no big deal. But if we're not careful, even little things in life will keep trying to point to you and say, you don't measure up. I measured up just fine. Just open your presence and ooh and ah over your presence. Everything is fine. The law's purpose, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, is the ministry of condemnation. That is the law's purpose. You want to hear what it says? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. Now, what ministry are they talking about? They are talking about the ministry of the Ten Commandments, the law. And they said, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So it's comparing law and grace. They're not saying that the law, it wasn't glorious. It is. The law, the Bible says, is perfect, converting the soul. There's nothing wrong with the law unless you're a believer. Then we're no longer under law, but we are under grace. Now, if I get out of the Bible, you stop me, okay? I'm in the Word, right? I'm in the Word. What the law could not do is the law could not impute righteousness like we have it today. That's the one thing it could not do. It could not make you forever righteous. Thank God for grace, right? Thank God for Jesus. He made us righteous once and for all. So it's healthy to understand that when a person comes to Christ, old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, look, all things are become new. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We could get into a list of the things that have passed away because it does say old things, so it's plural. But let me tell you what the one thing I'm so thankful for that passed away in my life, and that is the voice of the Lord being able to speak to me. It is not my master. It is not your master. It is not your friend. It is not your partner. It's not your helper. The Holy Spirit is your helper. Not the law. He does not need the law to help him. 
He can do it all by himself just fine. So, I want you to get this picture in your head. Imagine you work for Burger King. Okay, everybody's got to start somewhere. Burger King. And you work for Burger King for 10 years. And you leave Burger King and you go over here and you work for McDonald's. Now I'm working for McDonald's. Can you imagine how ridiculous it would be for the manager from Burger King now to come over into McDonald's and tell me what to do? Isn't that ridiculous? That is so ridiculous. Yet that is exactly what is happening in the church. They're allowing. See, what happened is when we got saved, we got translated out of the kingdom of night into the kingdom of light. Two different kingdoms, just like Burger King <laughs> and McDonald's. They're two different kingdoms. And so it stands to reason that my former kingdom has no right to speak into my life. I've been translated into the kingdom of light. So it is with spiritual things. We've been translated into this new kingdom, and the new kingdom is the one who tells us how to live and move and have our being, not that former kingdom. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says this, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But watch what it says, that we might be justified by faith. The law was. You know, I'm so happy and we sang it today that Jesus is not just the Jesus that was. Jesus is the Jesus that is. And better yet, he is the one that is to come. We sing about it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But here it says the law was. <laughs> the law was. When you get that revelation cooking in your heart that the law was, the law is no longer an is in a believer's life. It's no longer an is to come in the believer's life. And I never advocate going out here and being naughty. I never say that. Go out here and live your life so holy. I'm telling you what, people see uh, the Jesus in you and, and they just can't hardly resist him. That's how you should live. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified. Watch how he says, not by the law. We're justified by faith. Now, does this stand to reason if the law had nothing to do with it in the beginning and the law has nothing to do with it at the end, my justification, does it stand to reason that he has nothing to do with it in the middle? My life is not governed by a bunch of laws. The law is like a dental mirror that a dentist sticks in your mouth. With the mirror, he can detect a loose tooth, but he can't extract it with the mirror. With the mirror, he can detect a cavity, but he can't drill it with the mirror. The mirror just reveals the problem. That's it. It just reveals the problem. So it is with the law. The law just points out the problem of sin in an unbeliever's life, but it never provides a solution. Only Jesus. I said only Jesus. Only Jesus, the lamb that was and is and is to come, is our solution. The law, like the dental mirror, can tell you that your teeth are crooked, but it can't straighten them. The law, like the dental mirror, can tell you that your teeth are dirty, but it can't clean them. The law, like the dental mirror, can tell you that your teeth are chipped, but it can't crown them. 
The law, like the dental mirror, can tell you that your teeth are decaying, but it can't restore them. The law, like the dental mirror, can tell you that your teeth are missing, but it can't implant them. It can only tell you, it can only reveal what's wrong, and it's only designed for unbelievers. Only love. I said only love can make our crooked way straight. Only love can take a dirty mind and make it clean. Only God's love can heal our broken hearts. Only love can cut away rottenness in our life. Only love, only Jesus' love can take the shattered things in our lives and take them from everything being shattered to nothing missing and nothing broken. Only Jesus, only God, only the Holy Spirit, no law but love. It's no law but love that saves us. It's no law but Jesus' love that heals us. It's no law but love that rescues us. It's no law but love that delivers us. It's no law but grace and love that brings our lives and fills them with all good things. You say to me, okay, Mark, I kind of get it. I get the love thing. You painted the picture that love is responsible for all my blessings. But what I'm not convinced about is don't I have some part in keeping the law from my heavenly benefit package to arrive every day. You know the benefit package I'm talking about? Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Now let's name some of those benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. You know what? If that was the only one, we could just close the book and just be done. But it goes on. The Bible says He's forgiven all of our iniquities. Iniquities are some of the most twisted sins you can get into. He's forgiven all of our iniquities. The Bible says He's healed all of our diseases. He's reached down into the pit and He's pulled us, He's lifted us out of the pit and He's crowned us with tender mercies and loving kindness. He satisfies our desires with good things so that the youth is renewed like that of the eagle. That's the benefits of Psalm 103. And that's just partial benefits of knowing God and being in relationship with the Lord. So when someone says to me, Mark, they say to me, can you prove it's no law but love? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to prove it in context. I don't want you reaching back way over here in Exodus where the law was given, Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments came, and then reaching over here in Romans in chapter 5 where it says, while we were yet sinners, God poured out His love into our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's too far of a spread. Can you just bring it closer together so that we can see in context that it is about love and it's not about law? And i got one more request for you. Can you just find a place where Jesus is talking so we're not just getting this just strictly from Paul or... Peter or somebody. Can you do it in a place where just Jesus is saying this? Oh man, I can do it. John 3.16. Listen to me. I don't ever want you to get tired of this verse. It's the most awesome verse on love in the whole Bible. John 3.16. When I served at the Life Center for five years, every single Saturday, and ministered to hundreds and hundreds of people as they would come and get their groceries and their, everything they needed. Do you know, I can't tell you, I lost count how many people that when I would tell them about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I can't tell you how many people would look at me and say, I've never heard that before. I said, you live in America and you never heard that Scripture before? I've never heard that Scripture before. And many would say it with tears. Many people's heart would get moved. But then there would be some that would go, okay. Maybe they heard it, maybe they didn't. But it just, it was like, okay, whatever. And I would say to them, let me tell you the magnitude of the Scripture. 
You see, when, I, when my wife and I would minister at the Life Center, we'd walk out that front door at 9 o'clock in the morning when the doors open, and that line could be as many as 100 people or more long, sometimes two or three or four abreast. And I would walk down that line very slow like this, looking at every single person in, in the face, in the eyes. And I was waiting for the Holy Spirit, what He would do. He would, only He could do this. He would tell me exactly who to minister to. And so as I would walk by them, a lot of people just would just look down. They wouldn't even want to look at you. And I would just look, and finally the Holy Spirit would say, it's him, it's her, it's that family. And I would walk up to them, and I would just reach out my hand, and I would say, the Lord has a word for you. I want to pray for you. I want you to follow me. Almost always, they'd step out of line and just start following you automatically. Sometimes they were in line for hours to get up there to get their groceries. And so there were times when they would... I could tell they didn't want to get out of line because they thought, man, I, I don't want to lose my place. I could sense that by the Holy Spirit. Now I'd say, you're concerned about where you're going to be at in line when we're done, aren't you? Yeah. I said, don't worry about that. I said, I know how to take you from the back of the line to the front of the line. The last are going to get to be first. You know what I'm saying? Just like Jesus said. But I would start ministering and I would use that John 3.16 scripture so often, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is one of the pictures that God would give me as I was sitting there ministering to them in the prayer room. I said, I want you to take one of the largest cities in the United States with millions of people, and let's just take all those people and put them in one group. There they are. I have five children. Let's just take one of my sons, period, just one, and let's put him in a group all by himself. Now, I have to make the decision which group lives. All these millions of people or my son? And I would look at people as I was sitting across from them, and I would say, this is how I would handle this. I would say to the millions of people, I want you to tune in tonight at 6 o'clock, because I'm going to have a message for you. This would be my message to you. And I would do it with tears. And it would be this. You better get your heart right with God, because you're about to meet Him. You are not getting my boy. That is the heart of a father. That is a heart of a daddy with the love that we have. And I can't tell you how many times the people got the revelation of how big God's love must have been then. It was just like, oh, I, I get it. You could see when the revelation hit them. Sometimes it would come from a loss of breath. Other times you would just see them get moved. Sometimes it was with tears. But I would say, listen, I don't love you enough. I, I mean, I love you. I'm sure you got the good, the bad, and the ugly mixed in there. But this is my boy. So when God gave his only begotten son, it was not a reflection that he didn't love his son, but it, what it was a reflection of is that he loved us so much that he would give his only begotten son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That word believeth comes from the Greek word pastuo. It's the same root word as pistis, which means faith. Pastuo means believeth. And it's the hinge word to understanding John 3.16 and receiving John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him. The word believeth literally means to trust. So whoever would put their trust in Christ should not perish. Because otherwise, you can believe in God, but if you don't put your trust in Christ, you don't have the benefits, do you? You've got to receive Christ. 
The Bible says, he who has not the Son has not the Father. But I want you to see that word trust, T-R-U-S-T. It begins with a T and ends with a T. It begins with a cross and ends with a cross. And see, that's what our relationship with Christ is always about. It begins with a cross and it ends with a cross. You see, Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the Aleph and the Tav. It begins with Christ and it ends with Christ. So John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think that scripture all by itself tackles the love of God. Do we really need more scriptures? I mean, they're there, but do we really need them? How about the law? Let's leave this in context now. The very next verse, John three seventeen, which we hardly ever hear quoted, is this. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world would be saved. You see, what did He just say? He said, listen, my Son did not come to bring you more laws. He didn't come to condemn you. It's a fascinating statement. It's a fascinating scripture. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him the whole world would be saved. The ministry of condemnation was already here. It was the law. It was already here. He didn't need another lawgiver. The Bible says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. You find that in John chapter 1. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the whole world would be saved. Who was Jesus speaking to when He said that? He was speaking to a man named Nicodemus. You see, John chapter 3 is all about that conversation with Nicodemus. It opens up with a man of the Pharisee coming to, Nic to Jesus. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the first one that heard Jesus say that. That's an amazing thing to me. A man that knew all about the law, but didn't know about love. He was a ruler. I mean, this guy was the fittest of the Pharisees. And Jesus is right in his face. And he's saying, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you something else, Nicodemus. God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world. He sent his son in the world to save the world. You know, I was uh, a few years ago watching TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, and I saw it again recently and it reminded me of this. One of the most awesome things I've ever seen the late Paul Crouch do probably back in the, in the 70s or 80s, and they were having a telephone, and people were calling in and talking to the prayer counselors and getting saved. And what he would have his prayer counselors do on a big uh, five and a half by seven card is he would write their names and where they were from, and if they prayed the prayer of salvation that day with a prayer counselor. On the hour, they would give him a stack of cards that people had given their heart to Jesus. And Paul got out there on the stage and he was, was going through the list. So-and-so from Texas just gave their heart to Jesus. Johnny from Maryland just gave his heart to Jesus. Elizabeth from New Jersey just gave his heart, her heart to Jesus. And she, he was going through. And finally Paul got so excited, I don't think he planned on doing this, but he took all the cards and he threw them up in the air and he said, the whole world's getting saved. They rained down like confetti. It was the most awesome anointed thing you ever seen. That was the heart of Paul. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. That's my heart too. I'm telling you what. The whole world is getting saved. 
I remember years ago I was sharing this, I think, with Steve this past week. I hadn't thought about it in a while. But back in the 1990s, we had a man called Adrian, Pastor Adrian. But he came to our church to minister. And he was kind of like a T.D. Jakes, always had his head bobbing like this man. The guy was a powerful man of God, could preach the word, and very, very prophetic. And he picked out four people that were sitting in the congregation that day. And he said, I want you, each one of you go to the four corners of the church. And I was one of them. I wasn't very old in Jesus, and I was standing in the corner of the church. And he finally worked his way over to me, and he, I don't remember all he said, but what he did say that I, I grabbed a hold of, I'll never forget. He said, sir, you have the heart of an evangelist, and I'm telling you today, by the Spirit of God, every single person you minister to is going to be saved. Whoa, what do you do with a prophetic word like that? I mean, I'm two years old in Jesus at the time. I'm like, how could everybody get saved? We have a big God. We have an awesome God. And it's the message, this message that God is putting in our hearts to keep pointing to Jesus that he did not come to condemn the world, but that the whole world through him would be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world would be saved. Now watch what it says in verse 18. He that believeth on him, that's Jesus, right? He that believeth on him is not condemned. You never need to walk around. If you ever feel condemnation on you, if you ever feel the sense of guilt and shame and, and condemnation on you, I'm telling you, it's not from God. The Bible says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. And then it says, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus didn't have to come and condemn. He said, you're already condemned because you have not believed on the name of of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. Who's light? Jesus. Light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For anyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth loveth the light and cometh to the light, that the works of God might be manifest in him. Man, I never forgot that when he said that to me. Listen, friends, it's no law but love when it comes God. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. I'm reading this today from the Living Bible. It's a paraphrase, okay? The Living Bible. Here's what it said. Pay all your debts except the debt of love for others. Never finish paying that. Isn't that sweet? Hey, listen, just would you get all your debts paid, but don't pay the debt, don't ever finish paying the debt of love. Never finish paying that. For if you love them, you will be obeying all of God's laws, fulfilling all his requirements. If you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, you will not want to harm or cheat him or kill him or steal from him. And you won't sin with his wife or want what is his or do anything else the Ten Commandments say is wrong. All Ten Commandments are wrapped up in this one verse, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no wrong to anyone. That's why it fully satisfies God's requirements. And then it ends by saying, it is the only law you need. It's the only law you need. Back to the message title. No law but love. See, verse 8 right there clearly tells us that when we love others, we fulfill God's law. But did you notice in verse 9 
the Apostle Paul skillfully reached back into the Old Covenant, skillfully reaches back into the Old Testament, and he grabs five of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. So what the Apostle Paul was saying, in essence, is this. Here's what we have to do. Just be love conscious. It's not law conscious. Be sun conscious, not sin conscious. Be grace conscious, not grave conscious. Be relationship conscious, not rules conscious. There's no law but love. Really what he's saying is the only way a person can keep from breaking the Ten Commandments is through the power of love, is to be conscious about love. Otherwise, you're going to break them in your heart, if nothing else. Now, there are many culprits that are responsible for us being law or sin conscious. The culprit, I believe, that is leading the pack, and you've heard me talk about this, is the mixture of covenants. That is the one that is way out ahead of everybody. Imagine the confusion, if you will, if you took the game of Monopoly and you've never played it before, so you don't know how to play it, and when you take the cover off the box there, the rules to it are from checkers. You're going to go, what? You're going to be frustrated. That's what it's like if we are, as New Covenant believers, if we're trying to live based on old covenant principles and laws and not the principle of love. And that is precisely, I think, why the message of grace is so misunderstood. New Covenant believers trying to live, move, and have their being through an old covenant performance-based obsolete set of rules. Jesus is not weighing our sins. I heard Pastor Steve say something about it this morning. Jesus is not weighing our sins. Jesus carried our sins. He carried them away. We find that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins. In other words, it's another way to say he carried our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. He said, Surely he hath borne our grief, carried our grief and sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30 is an interesting scripture. Blows and wounds scrub away evil and beatings purge the inmost being. Now, if that can be true in the natural, how much more true is that in the spiritual? The blows and the wounds that Jesus received at the whipping post, the blows and the wounds that Jesus received on the cross. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. When you put your faith, your trust in Jesus, it scrubs away all the evil, and it purges our inmost being. It purges. When you purge something, there's nothing left. You got rid of everything. You purged it. I like to do that to my house every once in a while, and I always seem to get in trouble when I start purging stuff because my wife sees it in the garbage. She's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin. I love that. He's not coming again to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
Listen to what Colossians says in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and I love the Amplified Bible. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is the worldliness, the manner of life, God made you alive together with Christ, having freely forgiven us all our sins. How many sins did he forgive? Every one of them. This is the part I love. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of legal demands. You know, you can learn a lot from the Bible. The Bible says that God canceled out the certificate of debt. What was that certificate of debt? The certificate of debt was the the soul that sins shall surely die. The certificate of debt is the wages of sin is debt. That was your certificate of debt. You owed a debt you couldn't pay, but Christ said, I will pay it for them. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of legal demands which were in force against us and which were hostile to us. Did you hear that? The law is not our friend. Quit embracing the law. Don't embrace the law. He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. Quit talking to him. Change your phone number. Here's what he says. And this certificate he has set aside and completely removed by nailing it to his cross. All my law, all my condemnation, all my guilt, all my shame, all that certificate of debt has been nailed to, not my cross, his cross. But he did it for me. Is that love? That is love. That is love. Oh, man. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Listen to these scriptures because it really helps us understand the covenant. The covenant that we have, the covenant of grace. We're not under this covenant of law anymore. And I don't know of any section of the Bible that explains it better than Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point of what we have to say is this. We have such a high priest, the Christ, who is seated in a place of honor at the right hand of the throne of majesty, God in heaven. A minister, officiating priest, in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which is erected not by man, but by the Lord. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is essential for this one, that's Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were still living on earth, he would not be a priest at all. For there are priests who offer the gifts to God in accordance with the law. They serve as a pattern and foreshadowing of what has its true existence and reality in the heavenly realms, the sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was warned by God saying, See that you make it all exactly according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has acquired a priestly ministry, which is more excellent than the old Levitical priestly ministry. For he is the mediator, which is an arbiter, of a better covenant uniting God and man, which has been enacted and rests on better promises. Now verse 7, you can see the momentum begin to change here. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one 
or in an attempt to institute another one, the new covenant. However, God finds fault with them, showing its inadequacy when he says, Behold, the days will come, says the Lord, when I will make and ratify a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, for they did not abide in my covenant, so I withdrew my favor and disregarded them, says the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will imprint my laws upon their minds, not on tablets of stone anymore. I'm going to imprint my laws upon their minds, and it's that law of love even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding and engraved them upon their hearts, effecting their regeneration. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And it will not be necessary for each one to teach his fellow citizen or each one his brother saying, know by experience, have knowledge of the Lord, for all will know me by experience and have knowledge of me from the least to the greatest of them. Verse 12, for I will be merciful. I'm going to be merciful and gracious, God says, toward their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Quit remembering your sin. Did God say he'll never remember it again? And there are a bunch of other scriptures that, that say that too, that he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. He separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. I'm going to tell you something. Like I said before, the only thing the enemy has really got to really work us over with is fear. And in this last year, I became more and more free in that area where I just, I'm, I'm just not afraid. Because I understand who I am in Christ. I understand that he lives inside of me. I understand this covenant now. I'm not with one foot in monopoly and one foot in checkers. I understand I'm fully established in the righteousness of God. Verse 13, the last verse of Hebrews chapter 8. When God speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Don't forget that. He makes the first covenant obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete, which means out of use or annulled, and growing old is ready to disappear. Believers need to quit performing spiritual CPR on themselves when they mess up. And I saw this picture in my mind where so many times we're kind of almost taught and trained in this mentality that when we mess up, we, we get out our spiritual uh, defibrillator paddles. And we turn them on, and we've got the two defibrillator paddles in our hands. One is law and one's performance. And then we hear, clear! And you shock yourself back into, I've got to go back to church. Clear! And you shock yourself back into, I've got to read my Bible more. Clear! Pow! And you shock yourself back into, I've got to start fasting. I've got to start knocking on doors. Quit taking those spiritual defibrillator paddles and shocking yourself and beating yourself up. Because you've messed up. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. That is not my true heart. It's not who I am. And just move on with things. I don't know. There was a time in my life it took me six weeks to get over a bad thought. I just had this, this training in my mind. I said, man, how could I have thought a thought that bad? How could I have said something that wrong, did something that bad? Come on. Is somebody with me in here? 
I know you got all your pretty little smiles on, but come. <laughs> oh, man. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says this, For the fruit of the Spirit, watch the first one, is love, joy, peace, performance. Wait, wait a minute, I'm sorry. <laughs> love, joy, <laughs> peace. I'm sorry, I meant patience. Kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. But watch what he says. Against such there is no law. Did you notice the first one he started with? Love. Love was the first one he started with. I used to love to tell this story, man, with people. We used to ask people in our church years ago the five questions. They all have the same answer. And we'd ask them this question. What is bigger than God, meaner than the devil, the rich don't need it, the poor already have it, and if you eat it, you will surely die. I'm telling you what, if you had never heard that before, an adult cannot get the answer to that. But you tell a little kid, he'll tell you the answer just immediately. The answer is nothing. Nothing is bigger than God. Nothing is meaner than the devil. The rich need nothing. The poor already have nothing. And if you eat nothing, you're going to die. But see, what a child does is they hear the first question. What's bigger than God? They just say, forget about all that other stuff. Nothing. We've been taught that nothing's bigger than God. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Against such there is no law. You know, when I was looking at the fruit of the Spirit, there's nine of them, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. There's nine of them. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's nine gifts of the Spirit. And do you know what time of the day Jesus died? He died at the ninth hour. He died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that's right. But it was the ninth hour. See, the day began at 6 o'clock. You do your math, it was the ninth hour. The Bible says He died at the ninth hour. Do you know what nine represents in the Bible? It represents completeness. It represents completeness. So when Jesus was hanging on that cross, he, and He cried out there at the end, He said, It is finished! He was saying, Daddy, it's complete. Daddy, your children will never, ever have to relate to you again based on law. They can relate to you now based on love. They can relate to me based on love? Yeah. No law but love, by the way. My final scriptures. Romans chapter 7. It's a story of a wife that's obligated to do everything for her husband that Mr. Law demands. Kind of like that story I started off with. The only difference is, in Romans chapter 7, this is a spiritual husband, and his name is Mr. Law. And here's the thing about this Mr. Law, he refuses to die. The law is not going to die, friends. The wife in this vignette is very unsatisfied, but she doesn't know how to free herself from this exasperating tyrant named Mr. Law. She is so marinated in religion that she can't find her way to move from the law to love. She's not allowed to marry another man while her husband's still alive, otherwise she's called an adulteress. So do you see the conundrum she's in? She's got a real problem on her hand. Listen as I close with these scriptures, these words, in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Don't you understand yet, dear Jewish brothers in Christ, that when a person dies, the law no longer holds him in its power. Let me illustrate. When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, she's no longer bound to him. The laws of marriage no longer apply to her. 
then she can marry someone else if she wants to. That would be wrong while he is still alive, but perfectly all right after he dies. Your husband, your master, used to be the Jewish law, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that came out of the Jewish law. Listen to these next three words, though. It says, but you died. Mr. Law didn't die, you died. Let me read it again. Your husband, your master, used to be the Jewish law, but you died, as it were, with Christ on the cross. And since you are dead, you are no longer married to the law. It has no more control over you. This is powerful stuff. I know you've read this before and probably just didn't quite grab it like that. This is powerful stuff. Then you came back to life again when Christ did and are a new person. And now you are married to the one who rose from the dead so that you can produce good fruit. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? You can produce good fruit, that is good deeds for God. But now you need no longer worry about the Jewish laws and customs because you died while in their captivity. And now you can really serve God, not in the old way, mechanically obeying a set of rules, but in the new way with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And when you heard those words being used in, in the Bible, Jesus was the one to use them. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world would be saved. Friends, for you and for me as believers, there is no law but law. Father, I thank you. I've stood here today and I've preached this word the way you gave it to me in Jesus' name. I want to thank you as I proclaim a year of just total freedom, all the shackles of law breaking off of our lives, off of our minds, all these old mindsets and in Jesus' name. I want to thank you, Father, that your people are just becoming more and more healthy spiritually. And Father, that they can stand with the boldness and we can truly win the whole world. We can clearly say that the whole world is going to be saved in Jesus' name. And Father, when we say that, we thank you that we are mindful that it is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who moves inside of us and has his being and guides us and directs us in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for this church. Thank you for this ministry. We bless you and we bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.